Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Impactful stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be remembering a sports writing legend, Murray Olderman, who died this week at the age of 98. But first, as we celebrate the 48th anniversary of the passage of Title IX, we welcome one of the legends of American soccer, a Hall of Famer, one of the key cogs on the 99 World Cup championship team that would do so much to advance women's sports in the U.S. and beyond, our old friend and colleague, Julie Foudy. Julie, thank you for being with us. Hi, Jeremy. Julie, it's it's kind of impossible to talk about um, the evolution of women's sports and the impact of Title IX 48 years later without talking about 1999. And I know you talk about it all the time. And uh, I know you're asked to talk about it all the time. Um, but you can't really overstate the significance of what happened um, that summer. When you think back to it now, how do you place it in the context of all that we've seen in terms of progress in women's sports? It, you know, I... Um... I, I take a long, heavy sigh there because when we were in the moment in 99, we felt and we were very cognizant of the fact that this is going to be the standard that all other women's sporting events aspire to. And not just women's soccer events, right? Like we were very conscious of we're in the moment. We're setting the standard. We're doing it in big stadiums. We're doing it national. We're not going, which is what FIFA wanted us to do, go on the East Coast only, do a regional tournament, play in five to 10,000 seat stadiums. We blew up that plan. We said, that's stupid. We're going to show the world what women's sports should look like, what the standards should be, so that people understand the potential that they can tap into, right? And so it was really gutsy in that regard. Actually, U.S. soccer, I found out later, assumed all risk because FIFA said, no, we're not going to take on that risk to go to big stadiums and do a national footprint. So, so U.S. soccer said, okay, we'll assume all that risk. We're going to do it. And um, and so in the moment, we felt like, oh, my gosh, this is going to revolutionize the way people invest in women's sports, the way they put on events in women's sports, because we had a whole local organizing committee that spent three, four years planning, marketing, getting to the grassroots, putting out a plan, um, we did a ton of that as well, and you see the success of it. But the interesting thing is, is when you look back, which we did a lot last year for the 20th anniversary, you go, well, of course they got all this attention in the United States, but it wasn't the catalyst we had hoped it would be in a sense that it's taken so long still for, and especially if you're just speaking women's soccer, it's taken so long for federations and for countries to wrap their arms around the idea of if we put an investment into our women's program, it's a small investment for a large return. And you're finally seeing that now. We saw it with the 2019 Women's World Cup in France. We saw it, you know, a little bit more with the, sorry, a little bit before that in 2015 with the World Cup prior to that in Canada. You're seeing big crowds, big numbers, but really we saw it for the first time, something similar to 99 
took 20 years later to do. And so I think that's our frustration is for what that event was and what we thought it should be. It's taken a really long time to actually uh, grow its roots and the tree to blossom. We're speaking with Julie Foudy, the U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer. Soccer legend played such an important role in the 99 team that is such a big part of the story of the evolution of women's sports here in the U.S. and beyond. You know, Julie, it's been five years since Sepp Blatter uh, was ousted or self-ousted, however you want to put it, as the head of FIFA. Johnny Infantino's been there now for four years in charge. What can you say about, and and I'll be blunt, Sepp Blatter, my impression of Sepp Blatter was someone who did not have um, the utmost respect for the women's game and did not champion it the way that it should have been championed. Um, how are things now with a different uh, uh, leadership, with different leadership at FIFA? You know, they, Gianni Infantino, when he came in, he understood that, you know, the women's game was part of his platform. And so FIFA has come out with recommendations and proposals and and flowery language around their intent to grow the women's game. But a lot of their targets are so far off, right, with things they want to do that um, you're not seeing the movement I had hoped for with him and the change I had hoped for with him. I think uh, 2019 Women's World Cup I'll go to again is a great example they want this to be the premier event, right, for women's soccer, for women's sports in general, not just women's soccer. And yet when you're on the ground in France, Jeremy, as you know, having covered many men's World Cups, Euros, right, when you're there in a men's World Cup, everywhere you turn, there's signage, there's uh, banners, there's things hanging on the, the light posts, the lamp posts, everywhere, right? It's like you, you're hit, hit over the head when you come to the airport that they're hosting this World Cup. And for the Women's World Cup, maybe you saw a little bit of that in the smaller towns, but nothing in Paris, nothing in Lyon. It's really hard to even get a feel outside of the stadiums themselves that there's an event going on. And so they continue to market it and promote it similar they do their Youth World Cups, where they, spend, they don't put any money behind it. They don't make it a big event. So um, there's constantly, you know, people frustrated because there's no merchandise to be had. They don't sell it. Uh, and so it's just of the mindset still, which I worry about inside FIFA headquarters, that eh, it's women's soccer, right? It's an afterthought. Um, and again, I, I just I don't get it because there's money to be had that's sitting on the table. This is an untapped market. There's more gain to be gained, I think, on the women's side than the men's side right now because so little has been put into the women's game. Julie, what's going on now uh, between the U.S. Women's National Team and the U.S. Soccer Federation? A story, obviously, we've been following for a long time. Their fight um, for better pay, um, more equal treatment. Um, most recently, a victory in court for the Federation. Uh, essentially, judge saying they are being paid as much as the men or have been paid as much as the men. What, what, what you know, what is um, the status right now of what's going on in that battle between soccer and the U.S. women's national team? And of course, now there's a new leader at the U.S. Uh, uh, soccer Federation who is your former teammate, Cindy Parlow Cohn. 
Right. Who is a 99er who lived through all the past negotiations and battles and gets it, right? Uh, you also have a new CEO in Will Wilson, who I, I, my understanding is he's sympathetic to the player side of things, being an agent for many years as well. So you definitely have new leadership. What's happening, though, is with that court ruling, obviously the women lost a ton of leverage, right? The judge ruling that, well, in fact, that five-year period that I'm tasked with looking at in this case shows that you made comparable to what the men made, if not more in some instances. Um, the women argue, of course, well, those that five-year period you're looking at, we had to win two World Cups, we had to do well in everything we did, and the men didn't even qualify for a World Cup. Um, but what I'm hopeful for and what's not happening, sadly, is I'm hopeful that this doesn't spend another two years in an appeal process uh, and end up going to trial, but that Actually, they sit at the table. The only thing that worked for us back in my day, right, the only time we moved the needle was when we sat human to human, not lawyer to lawyer, but like player to president. And now with this shift in leadership, with Cindy there as the president who really wants to get something done, I'm surprised there hasn't been more movement on the player side and on that front. But right now, and, and you know, I spoke to Crystal Dunn uh, this past week for the ESPNW Summit and in the past and other players. And you know, they'll say, well, quarantine and the pandemic and we, you know, we haven't been able to get together as a group either. And so and that probably obviously has slowed things down. But there has been my understanding from both from sources on both sides. is There's been no movement to settle at all. Well, that's um, that's uh, that's got to be discouraging to you, obviously. Yeah, because I think what we, we realized right all along, even before the judge ruled in this, is that the court of legal opinion is very different than the court of public opinion. Although they had a ton of public sentiment on their side, you talked to a lot of different lawyers, which I did too, uh, prior to the, the judge, uh, you know, giving his opinion. And they would say, you know, Jules, it's not that great a case. And, um, and I think they should settle. I think that U.S. soccer realizes they have huge strides they need to make. And um, and at the time, Carlos Cordero, the president, was desperate to to settle because they also know U.S. soccer. It's a no win situation. Even if you win in court, you still lose in public sentiment and sponsor support because sponsors clearly want to see some movement on the women's side as well. So I I still am hopeful that that they will actually get to the table and be able to have some type of interaction, type some type of settlement. Julie Foudy, the host of the podcast, laughter permitted. The Hall of Famer, it's always great to have you on the show to share your thoughts. Julie, thank you so much as we celebrate the 48th anniversary of Title IX's passage. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. In the past week, the world of sports journalism lost two major figures – William Gilday, the longtime columnist, gifted columnist for the Washington Post, and Murray Olderman at the age of 98, who wrote and drew cartoons brilliantly for seven plus decades in the world of sports. We're joined now by another legendary sports columnist who spent decades at the New York Times, among other outlets, Ira Burko. Ira, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Jeremy. Always my pleasure with you. Ira, Murray Olderman, in in some ways, uh, put you on the path to greatness. Isn't that a fair way of describing it? Well, if there was a path to greatness, I'm still looking for it. But uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
but he put me on a path that uh, that he hoped would be positive, and I, I would like to think that it was, uh, yes. Uh, uh, I was working at the Minneapolis Tribune uh, and uh, as a sports writer. You were working for someone at the Minneapolis Tribune who is also who is still with us, who is older than Murray Olderman, who died this week in '98. Right, Sid Hartman is a hundred years old, uh, but but he wasn't he wasn't. And I think he would say this as well. He wasn't in the class of of, of Murray Olderman, uh, especially because Murray, well, not only being a very fine writer uh, and editor. But he was also one of America's great sports cartoonists, or should I just say one of great uh, uh, cartoonists and an illustrator. And, uh, you know, very few people combined, you know, writing with drawing uh, and, and achieved the success that Murray did. I mean, uh, Murray's writings were in literary uh, anthologies, and, uh, and his, and his uh, cartoons uh, were uh, uh, anthologized and uh uh, he was twice named the uh, cartoonist of the year by the Cartoonist Association of America. So it's uh, and, it was, and, and he did it uh, up. He was writing and drawing into his his mid eighties. And and the last book he he published uh, was a, a couple of years just a couple of years ago. He must have been ninety four and ninety five. And it was a collection of uh, on the left side of the page was a a biography of uh, of an athlete. On the right side of the page was the cartoon. Uh, uh, or a drawing of of the athlete. Uh, it was fantastic. Murray Olderman I, I was a legend in the business, and his longevity, of course, was remarkable. His numerous talents. I think I only had dinner with Murray once. I think it was with Joe Goldstein at the Super Bowl, Super Bowl forty two in Phoenix, when the Giants uh-huh. upset the right. Patriots. Yeah. Um, which would have been about, I guess he would have been about 85, a spry 85, something like that. But I read the obit in the Times this week. And I have to say, uh, maybe I'm overly impressed by these kinds of degrees. I had no idea that Murray Olderman was a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Stanford University. Right. He, he was a real intellect. And, and, well, and he also was fluent in French and German. And uh, uh, he went, he was uh, enlisted in the Army uh, and as a second lieutenant, and he went to Europe. It turned out on May 6th, I guess it was, the day before the end of, of the war in Europe. The war ended officially at midnight on May 8th. So, yeah, so he, he got to Europe on May 6th, 45. Wow. Yeah, and, uh, and he um, uh, interrogated... Uh, German uh, police, uh, German uh, uh, officers uh, for the U.S. And uh, uh, also, when he first got there, he was stationed in um, in northern France in a town near a town called or in a town called Nancy. I know Nancy well. It was Third Army headquarters, I believe, for Patton at some point in the fall of '44. Yeah. Well, Nancy was also the name of Murray's wife, who who passed away before he did. But anyway, uh, one of his jobs uh, was. Uh, um, uh, to uh, after the war was to go to the 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 brothels in Nancy and get out the GIs so that they won't, wouldn't be out past curfew. <laughs> Must have made him very popular. <laughs> so now whether Murray stayed around in the brothels, I don't know. But uh, Murray Murray was uh, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, among other things with Murray, uh, he got. Uh, uh, involved with uh, many athletes on a very uh, a positive level, and you know, like sometimes the the, um, 
uh, the subjects that you're going to interview, uh, you're a writer, and they're kind of reluctant in some ways. But Murray would do drawings of some of these people, and uh, which were published in uh, Newspaper Enterprise Association at 750 uh, newspaper clients, uh, most in the United States, but but also in uh, various parts of the world. But anyway, and so they would be published, and then like uh, Roger Maris. Uh, Murray went over to Roger Maris, and, and Roger said, I, "Murray, can you can you get a copy of that uh, of drawing that you did uh, of me? You know." And so uh, he had this great relationship with all these people. But one of them was uh, was the Reverend Bob Richards. Reverend Bob Richards was a uh, an Olympic champion pole vaulter, and uh, he had a good relationship with Murray. And uh, I worked with, with Murray uh, at NEA for a number of years. He hired me in 1967 when I was 27 years old. And, uh, and then we became friends all the rest of our lives. But anyway, uh, so one day uh, in the NEA office, Newspaper Enterprise Association in New York City, uh, where I was working for Murray, he was in the sports editor, and, I was, and he had made me a sports columnist at the, at, uh, about that time. And the Reverend Bob Richards, the Olympic, uh, as I said, the Olympic uh, champion uh, pole vaulter, Comes to visit Murray, and uh, uh, and and at one point he says to Murray, "Murray, you look great. How do you do it?" And Murray said, "Clean living, Reverend." And at first, at first, the Reverend was taken back, you know, a little bit. But then, uh, uh, so, uh, but uh, but Murray was also uh, he was very instructive. This uh, he was a mentor to me uh, in in many ways because he was uh, 18 years older than me. So I, when I joined the NEA, I was 67. He was 45, and um, and 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 he uh, he was a noted football writer. I think he and Tex Mall of Sports Illustrated were the two most prominent uh, uh, football writers in the country. And Murray, uh, uh, how, how many Super Bowls are there? Have there been now? Was uh, say there's 50. Um, Murray went to the first 45 or something. Uh, he was one of the few to have gone to almost all of them from the beginning. Eisenberg just missed this year for the first oh, time. Oh, is that right? And yeah. I think Jerry Green, I think Jerry Green, Jerry Green and Jerry, and Jerry Eisenberg were the last two, I think, who'd been to all of them. Yeah, but Murray was up there for, for quite a while. We're speaking with Ira Burko about Murray Olderman, the legendary sports columnist and cartoonist who died this week at the age of 98. And when I think of Murray Olderman, I think about you know um, that generation of of sports writers who were so widely read around the country. The syndication you mentioned, NEA. I mean, they had massive readership. Uh, it, it there there is. I don't know if there are are there columnists who have that kind of impact today and that kind of reach. Um, maybe on television. Maybe uh, you know Tony Kornheiser and. Uh, 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 Elbaum, uh, no, no, uh, Wilpon, uh, Michael Wilpon, maybe, maybe uh, on television. I don't think writers, no, um, I don't think so. Um, and, and, and there are fewer, fewer papers, uh, around the country. Um, but, but, my, but another, one other thing about Murray that, uh, he, uh, he was living in a retirement home and, uh, he, his eyesight was going, it was hard for him to see television. And he had somebody read to him and his hearing was going. Uh, and he had a loss of mobility, and he had one of these little scooters to to go around. And uh, and he and, and I used to, would talk to him about once a week. And he said, "I have all these different problems, but I don't consider them problems because he said I have I still have all my marbles, which he did. 
and uh, and I'd like to think that I had, uh, you know, at least some of my marbles left. So I was on the phone with him. This is only a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I started telling him a story, and he interrupted me. He said, Ira, you told me this last week. <laughs> he's, he's 98 and he's living in a retirement home you know he can't see can't hear you know but <laughs> I, I know you didn't have that kind of personal relationship with william gilday who also as i mentioned died this week the longtime washington post uh columnist but, but i respected him i i read him and I, I respected him he was very good yeah it's um Bill, Bill was very good to me. He was very kind. He was um, he was someone who always had an encouraging word, and I think he he was another um, example of someone who led by example uh, with the with the quality work that he did. Uh, how did you How did you connect with him, uh, Jeremy? Probably through Goldstein, the aforementioned Joe Goldstein. You know, at some point, um, probably. You know, just from being around events and covering stuff in the 90s, um, you know, at the same events that he was covering for the Post, uh, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, well, it's good, it's, good, it's good of you to remember these these guys. Uh, they were they were historic and they were important, and they they should not be forgotten. And it's it's a kudos to you, Jeremy, for this. Ira Burko, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. This week, ESPN is celebrating the 48th anniversary of the passage of Title IX. And we're talking about the ways in which it has made progress possible in women's sports. Our next guest is a professional poker player, a New York Times bestselling author. She's a contributor as well to The New Yorker. She has a PhD in psychology. Her newest book is The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And we welcome to the show Maria Konnikova. Maria, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. Why poker? Isn't that the question for the ages? I, which is it's, it's a very good one because I never played poker in my life. I'm not someone who had any interest in the game whatsoever. And I actually came to it because I became really fascinated by the role of luck in our lives and learning to tell the difference between what's skill and what's chance. What do we actually control? And then how much of it is actually getting lucky? You know, how much of any of the outcomes we have in our lives are us? versus just, hey, you lucked out, this is great, and enjoy it, but you don't have anything to do with it. And poker, um, as I learned from John von Neumann, who is the father of game theory, poker is actually a really good way to answer this question. So von Neumann was a poker player, and game theory was actually based on poker. He said that poker was the perfect analogy for this kind of strategic decision-making in life because poker is a game of incomplete information. So there's what I know, there's what you know, there's what we know in common, and we have to try to figure out, okay, how do I make the best decision I can, knowing I don't know everything, and knowing that I can't control the cards, knowing that I don't know what's going to come, but I have to decide anyway, and that my decision might be right, but I still might get punished for it because the cards might not go my way this time. But if I get my money in as a 70% favorite, that's wonderful, and I should do it over and over and over. And on the flip side, what if I make the wrong decision and I luck out and something wonderful happens? Well, that doesn't mean I should make this decision again. It means that I need to reconsider. I just got really, really lucky. Poker allows you to actually tell the difference and to start figuring out 
what do I control? What don't I control? And so I wanted to learn how to play the game. And I decided, you know what, let me start from scratch. Let me get someone to coach me because I think coaches are incredibly important whenever you're learning something new and want to enter a new field. And let me see what I can do. Let me spend some time in this world. And of course, I had no idea that I'd become good. I had no idea that I'd actually become a professional poker player. That was all in the future. We're speaking with Maria Konnikova, the professional poker player, PhD. Her newest book is The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. Now, I'm loath to admit this because I think my father, although he never quite admitted it to me, I think he paid his way through college playing poker. You'd think it'd be something you'd be proud of, but um, it was a different world, you know, 30 years ago. But I don't even know how to play. I have no idea. I'm in the same position you were in when you decided not only to learn, but of course to master it because you are overachiever is not the right word. You're an achiever. Um, How hard is it as an adult to pick up the game for the first time? You know, I was incredibly fortunate that one of the best players in the world, Eric Seidel, um, agreed to mentor me and to help me through this process. And he introduced me to some of the best minds in the poker world, and they helped me along. And I think that poker is a really complicated game that can get very difficult very quickly. But I do think that anyone can learn it um, to some extent if you take it seriously. It's, it's like anything. It's like um, any endeavor. It's like any sport because I actually, you know, people might argue with me on this, but I do think that poker has a lot of elements of sport. The competition, it's physically exhausting. You have to be in good shape to do well. Um, you have to eat well, all of these things. You burn tons of calories when you play, by the way, because it's just such concentration. But, but that aside, I think that I think that if you work hard, if you apply yourself, um, you can definitely gain some degree of proficiency in it. You don't need an advanced math degree. Um, the last time I took a math class was in high school. You don't need, you know, any sort of specialized knowledge because a lot of it is just understanding basic math and understanding people and learning to pay attention, learning to really be in tune with the people around you. Um, I think it's wonderful that your dad paid his way through college playing poker. A lot of presidents played poker. Richard Nixon paid for his first presidential campaign from poker winning. Well, we see what happened, though. He lost to Kennedy. It probably wasn't <laughs> the, best way, the best way to go about it. Um, we're speaking with Maria Konnikova. And, um, you know, I, I did, you know, I'm just trying to impress you with the very limited poker credentials I have. I did once work on a story about a legendary poker player, Dewey Tomko. And, um, and I got to know Doyle Brunson. I guess they're considered two of the great poker players of all time. But I was doing a story about, uh, how they played high stakes golf and this, um, this life, this crazy life those guys would lead where they're playing poker all night long and then they play high stakes golf all day long. I mean, $200,000 a hole. The people who are, who are at that level, the all-time legends, what is it that compels them um, to take those kinds of risks? What is it that draws them to the game? I think that there are two things. I think the people who are just these legends who manage to last in the game for a long time, they're playing it for reasons that are actually separate from financial gain. They love the game. They love the challenge of the game. They love what it gives them. They love 
playing people and winning. They love the strategy. They love how the game evolves. They're actually passionate about it. And that allows them to evolve with the game as opposed to letting the game pass them by. Because people who are just motivated by money and think, oh, poker's a great way to make some cash, you know, let, let's play, um, they actually don't necessarily um, become the best decision makers because you're – motivation is extrinsic as opposed to intrinsic. So you're not necessarily motivated to improve as much. And when the game passes you by, you might say, oh, you know, well, I just got unlucky. I keep getting unlucky. And then you go broke before you realize that, no, actually, you're just getting bad. You're getting old. You're getting slow. But I think that the things that um, the Doyle Brunsons of the world also have, which uh, also enables them to play golf for insane amounts of money, is they do have this little yen for, for gambling. Um, there's such a thing, and a lot of times with the golf, um, this is actually what was happening. There's a thing that a lot of poker players engage in called the prop bet, which is the proposition bet. So it's a bet on a proposition. So I bet you $10,000 you can't make this hole in one, for instance. Um, and you say, well, you know, I'll, I'll take that bet. And there are people who were famous for making just these crazy prop bets. Um, you know, I can uh, play tennis against a champion and win if I get to choose the rackets. This is a famous one. Um, and the rackets of choice were actually um, skillets, cast iron skillets. Um, and the guy had been practicing for a year to be able to do this, and he beat the champ tennis champion. Um, so, so I think that there's also... For, for the for the Doyles of the world, there's also that. There's also kind of this this love of of, uh, of kind of the gamble um, of you know, can I pull one over on you? Can I do this? Can I challenge myself to do this and win? There has to be an element of um, involuntary compulsion. I guess that's redundant, but compulsion anyway uh, involved. We're speaking with Maria Konnikova about her new book, The Biggest Bluff: How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And perhaps one of the um, one of the most frequently co quoted famous lines in sports, undying line, um, the great baseball mastermind uh, created the minor league system as we know it, um, signed Jackie Robinson, breaking the color line in baseball in 1946-1947. Branch Rickey, of course, said, luck is the residue of design as an expert on luck and chance. What do you think about that? Is luck merely the residue of design? No, I actually disagree with that. Um, I think it's very similar to the quote that also gets bandied about everywhere. You make your own luck. I don't think that's luck. Um, I think that you can design and plan and make opportunities, put yourself in good spots. But ultimately, you have to realize that there are also things that are just totally beyond you. And you just might be someone who's a luck box, which is a wonderful term that I learned in poker. Um, and you just totally lucked out and it has nothing to do with you. And someone who worked just as hard, put in just as much effort, put themselves in similar situations, didn't get lucky because, you know, that day, the person who was hiring for the specific job was feeling a little bit off and was in a cranky mood because they'd skipped their breakfast and there went this person's opportunity. So I think we do need to distinguish between, you know, being prepared and having good designs, which is all well and good, which we should do. We should work hard. We should try to put ourselves in the way of opportunities. We should have a positive mindset that enables us to take advantage of luck when it comes our way. But the luck has to come our way. 
And, and I think this is also crucial, it can't go against us. I mean, what happens if you're the best baseball player in the world, you just got recruited, um, and then as you're walking to the stadium, you get hit by a car and break your arm? Well, um, does that suddenly make you a worse baseball player? No, but you can't play anymore. And what if that was the start of your career and your career just never happens because of that? Your arm never sets properly. So that's just bad luck, right? And so I think it's actually more, when you look at the bad part of it, when you put bad in front of luck, you see how crazy it is to say that luck is just design or luck is just you know, preparation and opportunity or you make your own luck because Nobody would say that about bad luck, but it's the same thing. It's just the flip side of the coin. Maria, if, if luck really does play such an important role, not only in poker, of course, but in life and everything that we do, how do we even get ourselves out of bed in the morning? When, when we have so little control over, over everything. Yeah, that is such a great question. And that's actually the, you, you couldn't have known this, but this is the reason why my book is called The Biggest Bluff. Because the biggest bluff that the way I see it isn't a bluff that I made in poker at the table. It's a bluff that we all have to make every single day of our lives. And that's the bluff of telling ourselves that we're more in control than we actually are. It's a necessary bluff. We have to do it. I think on one level, we have to realize, yes, luck is important. Luck matters. And luck is a factor in basically everything. And there's no avoiding that. And you want to be lucky. That's, that's a really important thing. And that's not something you control. And yet, knowing that, you then need to make this big bluff and say, what I do still matters, and all of my choices still matter. And at the end of the day, I can actually take more control um, in everything that I do than would be warranted if I just had this very fatalistic attitude. Because I don't think that we need to be fatalistic. I do think that what we do matters that our actions matter, that our attitude matters, that how we frame things, how we frame events, how we emotionally respond to things, all of that matters because it makes us very different people. It makes us people who will react very differently to good luck and bad luck. You know, some people, when they get a spell of bad luck, that's it. You know, they're, they're out, they're done um, because they can't ever recover from it. Other people take it as an opportunity to learn. They're more resilient. They frame it in a much more positive way. And I think that that's what we need to strive to do, to take advantage of the good luck when it comes our way and really do the most that we can when we're lucky. And then when we're unlucky, to just try our best to move, move forward and put ourselves in a place where we're ready for the next time our life changes. More than a strategy for poker, but uh, an outlook on life. Maria Konnikova's new book is The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. Maria, thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Since the start of the novel coronavirus pandemic, so many lives have been lost. More than 100,000 and counting here in the U.S. alone. So many people have been suffering. Millions of jobs have disappeared. For many in this country, it was 100 days ago that the seriousness of this crisis started to sink in. That's when that game in Oklahoma City came to an abrupt end in the NBA Season 2. It happened so quickly. Soon, much of the nation would be shut down under stay-at-home orders. Daily life as we'd known it would grind to a halt. But now, as much of society reawakens, sports is coming back, too. To discuss that, I was joined earlier this week on Outside the Lines by the longtime owner of the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban. 
Mark, I, I know you're planning to go to Orlando when things presumably get started again. But now, 100 days since the season season shut down, what are you thinking about the NBA's readiness for this return for games again? I mean, th- this has been our entire focus since March 11th. How do we get back safely? And I think the NBA is doing everything possible. We're learning from what others are doing. We're dealing with the, the best in, in the fields of um, all related fields, all medical fields, all sci- uh, scientists. We're just we're talking to the best of the best. And so if there's any way we can do it, we'll, we're going to pull this off. Mark, we're seeing more new cases than ever before in the last few months in the state of Florida. So how does bringing everyone to Disney World, even in that bubble, makes sense in the context of what's going on in the state of Florida? Well, I mean, it, you know, when you have a controlled environment or as controlled as you possibly can get it, I, I think we're trying to emulate what we do in our homes, you know, where we feel safer, where, you know, people are getting tested, people are being monitored when they come into the environment. Um, there's continuous information. Every precaution that possibly can be taken, that's exactly what we'll do. Mark, Kyrie Irving, Dwight Howard, several other players are saying that it sends the wrong message right now for the NBA players to be playing instead of focusing on social justice issues. They're against playing some players. What are the chances that this movement um, will prevail and that there won't be games? I don't know. I really don't know. But, you know, I encourage them to speak up and say what's on their mind. It's important to hear their perspectives. It's important to listen to them. And, you know, there's 450 guys that that are participants. And, you know, in aggregate, we'll see what they have to say. You know, it's our job to position the the league to return. And, you know, hopefully guys will want to play, but it really comes down to them. One of the issues, Mark, of course, um, there are new league standards and guidelines regarding those who might be at high risk from the coronavirus, those who could get seriously ill and barring such people from taking part in the restart in Orlando. Uh, there are concerns from those in the uh, coaches association, including, of course, your coach, who is the president of the association, Rick Carlisle, 60 years old, that uh, coaches such as Greg Popovich, who's 71, Mike D'Antoni, who's 69, Alvin Gentry, who's 65, might not be allowed to be with their teams and that the rule could jeopardize their future employment. What are your thoughts about how that's going to be handled? I mean, I have to defer to the NBA and the scientists and the doctors that we're getting advice from. I mean, they're the experts. I'm certainly not. Um, look, I'm 60. I'm one. And, and so, you know, it's obviously a concern, but we're going to take every precaution necessary. Um, and again, I think in a controlled environment or as controlled as we can make Orlando, you know, because we're doing testing, because we're, we're taking every possible precaution, as long as the doctors and scientists are giving us OK, you know, we should be all right. But again, I'll defer to them. Mark, again, on, on the social justice issues, as you well know, the NBA has a rule that players must stand for the anthem. I believe the words are in a dignified posture. It's been on the books since 1981. Pre-David Stern, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was suspended back in 96 for not standing. 2016, Adam Silver said players were expected to follow those rules. What are your thoughts about the league's rule on standing during the anthem? You know, hopefully we'll be adaptive. Hopefully we'll, you know, allow players to to do what's in their heart. You know, um, whether it's holding an arm up in the air, whether it's taking a knee, whatever it is, I don't think this is an issue of respect or disrespect to the flag 
or to the anthem or to our country. I think this is more a reflection of our players' commitment to this country and the fact that it's so important to them that they're willing to to say what's in their heart and, and do what they think is right. So, you know, I'll, I'll defer to Adam on, on any final judgments and, and Michelle Roberts. But the reality is, I, you know, uh, my hope is they'll we'll let the players do exactly what they think is the right thing to do. Back in 2017, you said this is America and I'm proud of people who speak out civilly. That's who we are as a country. Uh, I'll be standing there with my hand over my heart. That's what you said, talking about the anthem. And I think the players will be standing, too. I expect them to be. How would you feel now if your players decided they wouldn't stand? If they were taking a knee and they were being respectful, I'd be proud of them. You know, hopefully, you know, I join them because I think we've learned a lot since 2017. I think we've evolved as a country. And this is really a unique point in time where we can grow as a society. We can grow as a country and become far more inclusive and become far more aware of the the challenges that minority communities go through. And so, you know, I'll stand in unison with our players, whatever they choose to do. But, you know, again, when our players in the NBA, you know, do what's in their heart, when they do what they feel, you know, represents who they are and look to move this country forward when it comes to race relationships, I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and I'll be proud of them. Mark Cuban, the longtime owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on OTL and Center. Thanks, Jeremy. We close this week's show with a few thoughts about baseball. The national pastime. This great game, the game of the babe and the iron horse, Oscar Charleston and Satchel Paige, the kid, Stan the Man and Jolton Joe, Jackie and Clemente, Big Poppy, Ichiro and Mike Trout. You want to know the heart and mind of America? You better learn baseball. That's the famous quote. But it happens to be true, or at least it was. Once again, baseball is trying our patience, testing our loyalty, boiling our blood. It has a penchant for this. You might say a talent. Is it really possible there won't be baseball this year? That baseball will find a way to alienate us again? Yes, definitely. It would be something entirely different if baseball decided not to play because of the health risks. But the issue, of course, is money, which makes sense. Because in case you'd forgotten, this is a business. So don't get sentimental about it. If baseball doesn't figure this out, there are those who say the game is finished. Kaput, that it will never recover. But that's wrong, too. No matter how hard baseball tries to repel us, we always come back. That's the problem. The game is too great, too perfect to perish. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.